Today, we'll be discussing how comedians deal with hecklers, and we'll be discussing the idea of difficult parents in pediatrics. This is Doctor versus Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic from medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, we'll be discussing how comedians deal with hecklers, and we'll also be discussing the topic of pushy or difficult parents of pediatric patients. Both topics are actually suggestions from a listener. Ali, did you know that? I did know that. I pay attention to some of the stuff the listeners say, you know? And and so they were from the same listener, who's a listener of ours in the U.S., and so we're very happy to uh, get the suggestion. And obviously, we really want to hear about more suggestions from the listeners. If you guys have any thoughts for future topics, let us know. Yeah, absolutely. Both of these were things that we'd been mulling about, but I don't think mm-hmm. we thought about uh, having them on the same episode at the same time. So this was uh, this is a good idea. Thank you. And you much. could say that they kind of are like, well, I don't know if they're related or not. You know what? We can draw some parallels. Let's say that related might be too strong, but I think we can draw some parallels. I think they both make are things that are challenges in our professions. That's probably the most that we can say and how you deal with it is a bit different. So why don't we get started? Let's do it. Just a small town girl. Where does she live? Living in a lonely world. Did she stay there or was she traveling? She took the midnight train going anywhere. Thank you. So only a small town girl, right? Just a city boy. Oh, there's more people. Where's he from? In South Detroit. I've never been there. I heard it's nice. Took the midnight train going. So they both took the same train and went to the same place. Gotcha. So that's a uh, popular sketch from Jimmy Fallon on The Tonight Show that's called Peter and His Heckler. Jimmy Fallon was singing Don't Stop Believing. Will Ferrell in the audience, I think people could tell his voice, heckling him in between every line of that song. (laughs) I love that skit. And so that's, that's the funny, hilarious kind of side of heckling. Obviously, it's something that you guys as comics have to deal with. So I guess to start off, you know, are there different types of heckling? There are types. I mean, there's also degrees of heckling, like uh, how bad it can be, where you have to sort of call security. That's probably (laughs) the worst. You know, heckling feels like sort of a broad term because sometimes, you know, the, the one that's the worst, I guess, is somebody just going like, you suck. Those ones that are sort of hard to come back from, especially, especially if you do suck. Like if that heckler has the crowd on their side, eh, you're in some trouble there. That's probably the worst. But then we also consider stuff like when people are just being noisy and not listening and disturbing the show, that's a form of heckling. Every comic has gone through that if they've been doing comedy for a while. They, they've seen that where people come out to a comedy show and the comedy show is just a continuation of their conversation that they were having at dinner before the comedy show. Mm-hmm, the fact mm-hmm. that there's a comedian up there doesn't change their outlook on how loud they should be or where their focus should be or whatever. So that is a form of heckling. And then there's another form that comes to mind, which is people who do this, like uh, you tell a joke and then the person goes, oh yeah, oh my God, that's happened to me too. And you're as a comedian, you're like, yeah, this isn't interactive this is not meant Mm -hmm. to be a call and response type of uh situation here so you just you have various types of behavior that people just don't know how to behave at different levels and all together that becomes heckling yeah it's like it's like anything that's interrupting i guess this thing you know because bottom line when you want to ask the audience something, you just, you ask them, that's the invitation, you know, where are you guys from, whatever, whatever, are you two here on a date, whatever you ask the audience, right? But that's your invitation for them to participate. Otherwise, they should not be participating, I'm assuming. that Right. Would be- and in fact, that's a challenge sometimes for younger comics. They see more seasoned veterans do um, crowd work, as we call it. And then they figure, oh, I'll do crowd work, but you can also lose the crowd 
easily if you do crowd work without having control. There's a psychology at work. There's a power dynamic at work. And you learn over time how to use it. You know, the people who are good at crowd work give signs, you know, subliminal sort of signs to the audience that I have the power on stage. Mm -hmm. Now I am giving you some power. We're having this interaction. <laughs> Don't abuse it. Don't, Don't abuse, abuse it. That and then now I'm taking it back. But know that I was always in control. I was always in control. Because I can imagine if it doesn't, it would be one of the worst things you could ever see in a comedy club was things just go downhill, downhill, downhill. Like if you lost control of the crowd, yeah, is there a bigger nightmare? It's worse than people not laughing. It's like being a substitute kindergarten teacher sometimes. <laughs> That's the best way I can describe it. If you don't have control of the crowd. And sometimes it's like a choice you made on stage. You said the wrong thing to the wrong person and that person wanted to be the hero of the show. And then that was the end of it. And I'm talking to one guy in Sudbury, Ontario in particular, when I say that. It was, so did that happen to you and your show kind of tanked or you saw it happen to someone? Oh, else? no, no. I, well, you know, I've seen a lot more heckling than I've experienced, thankfully, but one guy in Sudbury was, that's a pretty special memory that I have. I started interacting with him. He had about, I don't know, 14 bottles of beer on his table. I think three of them sitting there himself and two ladies or himself, a lady and another guy. And he had a lot of beer there. So it was, you know, worthy of, I also have some level of ADD. So I get distracted by these things and then I mm -hmm. talk about them and I have the confidence to, to make it funny or make it fun. But as soon as I started talking to him in his defense, he never spoke to me before I spoke to him. But once I did, I opened up some floodgates. Then it was like every single thing I said, he would say something back. And, yeah, you know, I also, I'm not the type of comic to be like, dude, shut the hell up. And and sometimes you feel like saying that and, and I've gone there, but that's not really, I don't like that. I enjoy that. So I, I get, I stay a little playful for as long as I can. But just to give you an idea, when it was time to do my sort of closing joke, my words to him were like, buddy, I'm begging you. I'm begging you. My friend Dave Mahesh is coming up next. You're going to love him. Just let me tell my last joke. Just let me, just let me tell my last joke. He's like, all right, dude, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He didn't seem like a horrible guy, but I lit some sort of thing underneath his butt. Anyway, the club asks him to leave. They're like, you have to go. You just interrupted too many times. You have to go. So he pays and he leaves. And my buddy Dave Merhej does his 45 minutes. We were double headliners, basically. Mm -hmm. I did 45, mm -hmm. he did 45. Somewhere during Dave Merhej's set, while this guy was walking the streets of Sudbury, he got angry and he goes, no, hold on a second. All the money that I paid in that bar, I didn't talk. That guy talked to me and he mm -hmm. came back and he wanted to beat the crap out of me. He goes, I want to have oh, a talk wow. with that. Yeah, so Dave was, Dave was still on stage and this guy was like, I want to talk to that guy. I want to talk to that guy. So he had like, I don't know if he'd done some Jack Daniel shots while he was gone, but he was very much more angry. And so then I had to hide in a stairway. The owner was like, just, <laughs> can you just wait in the stairway? I'm going to get rid of this guy. I was in that stairwell for quite some time. I really thought they forgot about me. I was like, I feel like everybody. And then, yeah, they were like, he's gone. He's gone. And then uh, sure enough, some people in Sudbury were like, ah, don't worry about that guy. He's just a loser. He's drank so much. He's going to be, he's going to be in a ditch in the next few minutes. Anyway, don't worry about him. We go to a bar in Sudbury. Who's at that bar? Oh no. This guy, I mean, this guy had a tolerance for booze. I'll tell you. And we had to leave that bar right away. I was like, oh God, let's get the hell out of here. And then we just drank in a hotel room. Wow, yeah. So that guy uh, wanted me dead. So that's a type of heckle. Yeah, that's that's uh, one of the more extreme situations. I was going to ask you about minor things. Like, does it bother you when people are looking at their cell phone? Aren't there sometimes where they're like, you say something and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That happened to me, too. Yeah. And they're like, you're having a conversation, but you're not having a conversation. You're not having a conversation. There are just, you know, you can't expect everybody to know how to behave in public. That's the bottom line. So you're a little bit forgiving. But if you make fun of them, you hope that they realize that, oh, I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing. Or if you tell them, you know, gently like, hey, man, I didn't need your life story. I'll take it from here. I'll take it from here. You know, I, I've got the mic. Don't worry. I'll do that. And it's like a gentle laugh. And you hope that you can move on. But sometimes you really can't.
Another form of heckling and uh, another thing that I've, I've never seen since, a guy put his feet up on the stage and started chatting with his date really loudly. Doing it so loudly. Like, so I got off stage. I'd done my set. And I was like, that has to be some like exec from NBC or something. That has to be a scout. That has to be the confidence with which mm -hmm, they had their, mm -hmm. I was just like, my mind was blown. The host came up after me. It's my friend, Cal Post. One of the best things I've ever seen. Just had the whole crowd chanting, shut up, shut up. He, you know, it took some time for him to get there. And then security dragged this guy out forcibly. And he was holding onto the door frame so that they wouldn't. And he, they were pulling him out of there. And his date, that was the first date. She said, I'm staying. Oh I don't gosh. like that guy. And so she stayed, she joined another table. She became like a lovely friend to the show. And that guy got carried out, later came back crying, trying to get back in. He was crying. He was like, oh, my mother died, man. You guys don't oh, understand. Oh. It was crazy. And it's just a reminder that you just don't know what people are going through. So, so I, I wanted to ask a couple of follow-ups about that, not that particular story, but what you mentioned. So first of all, it's that whole front row thing, because, you know, when I've gone to see you at a comedy club, you know, sometimes they want to seat me in the front row and I'm like, no, no thanks. They're like, no, you got to sit there. And I'm like, dude, I'm friends with a comic. It's not going to be funny if he's talking to his friend, like nobody wants to see that. So, like, okay, fine. So then I sit in the back, but do they purposely want people to sit in the front or do they think that they choose those people to be like, oh, this person's going to be easy to make fun of. I don't know. Not at all. I've never heard of that. I've never seen that. I think at the end of the day, it's that it's just awkward for a comedian to be on stage and have an empty front row mm -hmm. in front of them. That, that's the bottom line. So they just want to fill the seats properly because if you leave it up to people, they'll go, I don't want to be made fun of. And the truth is there are comedians who will make fun of you. Not as many as you'd think, but some, particularly the more insecure of the comedians, like to choose somebody and make an example out of them and thereby showing they have control. So nobody else better mess with me, you know, this kind of thing. Or, you know, the truth of the matter is people like to laugh at other people. So sometimes you make fun of somebody to get the rest of the crowd on your side. There's one sacrificial lamb there and, and often they're in the front row. Well, yeah, I mean, that's slightly mean, I think. I'm not sure well, I would Comedians are not all fun. like well-balanced people. I mean, nobody's a Good point. Of, yeah. <laughs> There's another topic for another show. But so, but it's funny you're talking about that and, and in terms of making fun of people in the front row. So I think this is now time for a story that you and I experienced. Do you want me to tell this sure. story? So. Ali and I were visiting our friend Dave, who lives in California, and he, Dave lives in San Diego, but we decided to drive up to just outside of LA to go to a comedy club, and you were performing, I think you got- Yeah, yeah, I got yeah, a set, yeah, it was so, a big moment. To, yeah. I never performed in the US, I got a set at the Comedy Factory in uh, in Long Beach, mm -hmm. big, big room, a lot of stars passed well, through yeah, there. Lo lots of people there, yeah, it was, it was, it was great, and so- the problem was Dave invited some of his friends and one of his friends, I can't even remember this guy's name. Well, I will tell you that friend was a wonderful host. I was in that man's home. Yeah. He had two orange trees in his front yard. I've never seen such a thing as a Canadian orange trees. We were plucking oranges off his front yard tree and eating delicious oranges. And I thought, what a great guy. Yeah. I, I thought the same thing. Was he just was super oranges. nice. Yeah. <laughs> No, I thought he was a super nice guy, too. So it, it makes the second part of the story very unusual. So we sat in the in the front row for the first couple sets. And then afterwards, uh, some of us moved away from the front row for reasons which shall be obvious in a few seconds. <laughs> so what he did was he basically, he didn't have his feet up on the stage, but he was sitting, if you can imagine, arms crossed, legs extended, kind of leaning back in his chair. And... Almost a scowl on his face. Mm -hmm. And he's a his, big man. He's a big man, yeah, six yeah, foot two yeah. or so, very noticeable. Yeah, yeah, for sure. He was expressionless. How about that? He was Let's a robot. That. He was an yes. emotionless robot. And clearly his idea of a going to a comedy club was, you try and make me laugh. Mm -hmm. If you're funny, I'll laugh. But you're not funny. I'm not going to laugh. Yeah. And he just sat for there. I've never seen, honestly, I've never seen comedians so thrown off by something. 
I couldn't even do anything because he's my friend's friend, somebody I'm almost about to call a friend. He's had me in his home. I can't be, if his name is Michael, I don't know. I can't be like, hey, Michael, uh, uh, I thought we were friends. Why aren't you laughing? It's very pathetic to be like asking your friend, <laughs> why are yeah. you not laughing, friend? I was in your home. So I didn't really know how to handle this. And I felt the most bad that I brought this new, you know, new person to the room, brought this guy as an audience member, because I'm sure the comics were like, who is that guy? And the last thing I want to do is raise my hand and be like, oh, sorry, that's a friend of mine. It's yeah, a friend exactly. of a friend. Yes, that's why we left and moved to the back of the club, because yeah, yeah. I'm like, I can't be associated with this dude. And and it's crazy. And these are these are like seasoned L.A. comics. Like, I mean, L.A. and New York probably have the highest number of comics mm -hmm. per capita, I'm sure, in North America. So these guys are seasoned guys, right? And they were just like, I mean, the, some of their whole set was revolving around this guy not yeah. laughing. It was, yeah, exactly. it was insane. Yeah, he was, uh, sorry, a loser. I, You know, I'm sorry, man. You know who you are. It was a bad idea. So, okay, but let me kind of switch around that. Is heckling ever justified? And I, I have an example of this kind of as well, but... I'm, I'll ask you that first. Do you think it's ever justified? That's a tough one to answer. You know, if you go to the UK, people pay for a ticket with the understanding that I paid to be here. I'm an audience member. I can say whatever I want. And it's much more common in the U in the UK. And it's um, it's allowed to sort of happen. Whereas some clubs in North America, you heckle three people descend on you immediately and say, if you speak again, you're out of here. And so I have literally watched British people say something in good spirit, not you suck, but like, uh, uh, you get them, get them with the next one, mate. You know, something like your joke didn't work, get them with the next one. And immediately they're descended upon like, that's not going to happen. Like, Oh, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. You know, back where I'm from, that's, we don't, we, uh, right. you know, that's not how it works. So is it justified? You know, Joe Rogan has a quote that, that where he says it's important to remember that every heckler is 100% a douchebag. And you kind of feel that. <laughs> you kind of do feel that. Some people don't even know they're doing it. I know some people don't have that patience. They're like, no, no, everyone knows they're doing it. But I think some people don't even know. Something just like slips out of their mouth and like they're the funny guy with their friends. And so they say something. I think... There's definitely times where somebody's heckling or interruption of a show saved a show that was going badly, right? And I've had those shows where I got to make fun of one person and everybody rallied around it and loved it. And, and in the back of my head, I was like, well, thank God for that person, really. But I still don't think it's justified because as we learn our craft as comedians, you know, it's our material that we're really trying to make people right, uh, trying to entertain people with not your once. But I think that's what happens sometimes with, with a heckler. If you can handle a heckler and make a lot of fun of them, people around you are like, look at this. This is a once, this will never be seen again. This is a unique experience that we are, we are all collectively part of right now. That guy said something off the cuff, then the comedian said something, and he said that then it was like funny, and we're all like, so I think there's sometimes this appreciation. But yeah, there are people who think they saved the show, and I'm going to tell you something, you really didn't save the show. It's funny you mentioned the British comics, because Jimmy Carr is one of these comics, mm -hmm. right? Who, it's almost like he invites the hecklers, and he might. I mean, he is, you know, playing chess with these guys, right? Oh, he yeah, is yeah, so far ahead of them. Oh, yeah. and, and we can't play his material because it's it's pretty risque, but he's hilarious. And he uh, he's on another level when it comes to the, these types of people. But the example I was going to tell you, it wasn't really heck. Well, it was. Everybody booed this guy. So I was in the um, U.S. We were at Caroline's Comedy in Times Square. I was with my wife, her sister, and my brother-in-law. We went to go see a comedy show. Jeff Ross was the headliner, and there was a guy who was probably second on. He was clearly high on drugs, without a doubt, and probably cocaine, like a stimulant. And he was just going on and on, stream of consciousness. It made no sense. He starts talking about like a shark jumping out of the water and biting him. And he was just, it was garbage. No laughs just whatsoever, the, I think. No. I remember you telling me, right? And the just booze just booze. kept coming. Okay. Booze and booze and booze. And eventually, you know, and the MC came out. I was like, you're out. And then the MC, you know, just like 
the level of tension was so high in the room because this guy ruining our night, this unfunny comic. And she made, I can't remember the joke, but she made some joke about like sharks and blood in the water or something. And it was, it was, you know, it let all the air out of the room. Everybody relaxed. The tension was gone. It, it really worked. Sure. I, I mean, I meant let the tension out. Letting the air out sounds bad, but she let totally. release the tension. Everybody laughed. And so I guess to wrap up, any kind of strategies you would suggest about, you know, say someone is starting off in comedy and how do they deal with hecklers? There's no blanket strategy. It's about your personality as a comedian and as a human being. You know, some people are angry. You know, like my friend Dave Merhez, I can picture him sort of like somebody says something and all he has to do is go, you know what? This is what I hate about stuff like this. And target that guy and then do a five minute rant about that guy, what he said, <laughs> people like him, people in general. And all of a sudden it's like thunderous applause for Dave Merhage. And everyone's like, what happened? Didn't he just get heckled? How did he turn that into that? That's very unique to Dave Merhage. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Other mm -hmm. people, very soft-spoken on stage. Your own confidence matters, too. One of my favorite comedians and a friend of mine is Deborah DiGiovanni. I remember Deb just killing at this comedy club. And then for th three times in a row, she had to be like, guys, I can hear you up here. If you could just be quiet, this mm -hmm. table would keep up. And finally, she goes, hey, I don't want to tell you again. Shut up. This is so rude. This is so incredibly rude. God. Now it's like dead silence. Now no one's having fun. Everyone's kind of scared. Mm -hmm. And Deb DiGiovanni, because she's such a killer on stage, was able to build that back down from zero, less than zero, mm -hmm. back up to a 10. Not everyone can do it, you know? So you know what you're capable of as a comedian. Mm -hmm. And the best advice I ever got was never say anything, never ask anything that you're not prepared to get a response for. Right. Like, for example, if you're if you're one of those comics, you're like, so, hey, uh, where are you from? And somebody says the name of a city and you don't know the geography of the of the area. Mm -hmm. And it's like right next door to where you are. And it's a rival of the town you're in. And you're like, oh, I don't really know where that is. And then, you know, if people turn against you because you don't know. You're not even caring right. to look around their city while you're in their city. You don't even care at all about them. Then you kind of deserve what you got. You're the one who asked. So mm. never ask a question that you're not prepared for any answer for because you asked it. So I think that's a big one. Help yourself that way. And then otherwise, you know, as a comedian, you just learn your style. Steve Martin had that great heckle response when oh, somebody yeah, yeah. when somebody would uh, would heckle. He would just be like, ah, I remember my first beer. It, it's so good. That's probably That's the best. One. Last thing I want to mention to you is what do you think about this strategy? I found this on YouTube the other day. It's basically this comedian, Joe Klosek, mm -hmm. uh, and he invites the heckler up on stage, gives him a mic and says, okay, go ahead. Go, you start, start making fun of me. Go ahead. And he does it. And of course, you know, the audience is on his, the comedian side, Joe's side. So they're like booing and not laughing at this guy at his lame jokes and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, but I, I think that took a lot of guts for him to do that. I don't know if that would be advisable. I've seen a comedian do that. Mark Forward, a Canadian comedian at the Comedy Nest in Montreal, told the guy to come up. You tell some jokes. And then Mark went and sat in the audience oh and heckled gosh. him. But like rude, like way ruder than the guy was. Mark almost actually lost the audience at the, in that point because he went overboard. Right. But my whole thing is that you cannot guarantee that that audience member is going to come on stage. Because it has, you know, you've seen that too, where you go, come on, why don't you come up here? No, 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 thanks. You're supposed to be the professional, not right. me. You know, that kind of thing. So again... Don't ask for something that you can't guarantee is going to happen. Don't ask for something you're not prepared for the answer for. So you can't guarantee that audience member coming on stage. But if you can make it work, fantastic. Sweet justice. Well, Ali, I really appreciate these tips. The next time I'm presenting at a medical conference, anybody heckles me, <laughs> they don't know what they're in for. Neurological? This guy's so dumb. He doesn't know anything about the brain. All you do is start crying. Okay, now, 
let's uh, let's flippity flips over here and let's talk about something. I mean, it's as we said, this is not relating to to, to heckle. It's it's kind of in the spirit of heckling. I, I wanted to say like these are the hecklers of your industry, Asif, but I don't think that's really true. I mean. Difficult parents. I know when we dis- we started talking about this topic, it's like, I don't think a lot of parents who are difficult would even know they're difficult. And I don't think you wanted to have the job of calling them difficult either. No. Yeah. So, I mean, and this is something, well, I'll get into why it's such an issue. But I think that the first thing we got to get straight is, I know we call this section difficult parents, but that's, I don't think that's appropriate, to be honest with you what we're talking about is difficult relations with patients and any relationship. And I'm going to keep reinforcing this is a two way street. I don't care if it's you with your kids. I don't care if it's you with your wife. I don't care if it's you with the guy who just caught you off in traffic. There's a two way street and there's an equal responsibility and saying difficult parents. What it does for doctors is it puts all the blame on the parent. Mm, They're a difficult person, you know, there's got to be a bit more to it. So I would say difficult relationships because relationships we all know can be difficult. There's people in this world who you get along with very well, and there's people who there is tension. And I think it's important to kind of look at that and, and examine. Right. Well, I was thinking of another element too, uh, which I, you know, I'm sure plays a role. When you say someone's a difficult parent, you can say that I think if they're the parent of a child in kindergarten and they're like you're assigning too much homework to my child or if they are like a soccer parent who's like you know on the field yelling at other kids you know but when you're advocating for your child's health mm-hmm. in a neurological mm-hmm. sense i mean there has to be some level of i guess sympathy and compassion there too because it's an unenviable these are not choices right the kindergarten teacher and the soccer dad or mom that feels like a choice this feels like i didn't ask for this situation and i'm desperate and i'm and i'm in a bad place well, I, th- I think there's levels to it. I-, I don't think there's anything wrong, particularly with people giving feedback to their soccer coach or their kindergarten teacher. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Often it's how you do it. And the soccer is a good example. I mean, both of our kids play soccer, like your, some of your kids, some of my kids. And we've seen this kind of abusive language that we see and, and things like that. And that obviously has no place. Does that happen in healthcare? It does. In that respect, I I agree with what you're saying. Lumping those people on the soccer field who are yelling and swearing at the 12-year-old referees, right? Mm -hmm. That's not, you cannot equate that at all with with this quote-unquote difficult parent or these difficult relationships. Right. But to, to be fair, there's some interesting, and you'll see this a lot in pediatrics. In fact, lots of people who go into adult medicine say they don't go into pediatrics because of this, this worry about having to deal with these difficult relationships with parents. So there's one quote I found from this author, Ajibike Lapite, which I apologize in advance if I'm butchering your name. This person says, you know, if you ask me in medical school, what I anticipate to be the hardest part of pediatrics, she'd say, you know, loss of a pediatric patient. That would be very difficult. But she's like, it's not. It's my interactions with parents. That's very difficult. That's what people have this hesitation about. And and you can see why in some of these circumstances, people will butt heads because, as you said, the parents, they have what they perceive, they, what they want, the best interest of the child, and doctors have that. And when there was a line, it's great, but sometimes it doesn't. Now, I'll also say something. I, the vast, and I'm talking 99.9% of relationships I have with patients, parents, family members are amazing. I love my patients so much. I love their families. They're so nice. We have such a, a great relationship, even with a difficult situation. You and said 99 point, and then you hesitated before that third nine. I'm going to say it's a little lower, but but we'll keep it in there. I'm going to well, say it's 99.75. I mean, so that's what sure, I'm thinking. Sure, Was sure. It, let me tell you, let me ask you something. Is it like once a week or once a month that you have, you encounter sort of difficult, challenging relationships? Certainly not on a daily basis at all. Is it every month? Maybe. I, I I mean, I've been doing this a long time. There's, I'm pretty used to people who are you know coming to terms with accepting a diagnosis or they disagree or something goes wrong you know, in the hospital. I'm okay with that. And I think there's rare exceptions where it devolves into something where I would say is a difficult relationship. 
I asked that question because I remember when I was in sales and I'm not trying to equate my uh, selling of uh, DVDs and dishwashers to your, uh, you know, pediatric mm. neurology. <laughs> but we knew like one out of 10, this is the way it was you know, presented to us. One out of 10 customers are going to be a jerk. And some days you got three people who were jerks and you're like, what, what's going on? But then you'd have three days of no jerks, you know? And you were like, oh, it actually really doesn't. Yeah, no, no. You frame it's it that not, way. It's, it's not like it's that. It's extremely, because it's extremely real. I said 99% of interactions I have are good. Yeah. 99.9 .9 is actually what is I what said. you said. And, and so, yep. of course, it's, it's extremely rare, but this is a true statement. That 0.01% takes up an extraordinary, it takes up 99.9% .9 of my day, if that's sure. the case. Sure, that's, sure. that's the issue. So, honestly, it's rare, though I will tell you something, and this is something I want, and we need people to keep in mind by people, I mean doctors. I've seen it more recently in the past year. That's for sure. Sure. People's children are sick, usually in the hospital, usually with something relatively serious, you know, and we're in the middle of a pandemic and lockdowns, and maybe some people are getting COVID in there. Like, it's so stressful to handle. I don't know how I would handle it if my kids got very sick to be hospitalized during the middle of the pandemic. So I think I think there has to be a bit of empathy about that. But what's interesting to me about this is that there's, I always want to talk about data, right? And there is some data on it. They say about, it depends on which study you read, but probably some people will say in adults, so adult medicine, 30% of their relationships with patients are categorized as difficult. So that's a lot. That's high. Right? That's a, that, that, that is high compared because I just said it was like 0.1. Yes. And as you were implying, maybe I'm exaggerating slightly. The problem is we're not talking about a relationship between an adult physician and an adult patient. That's different. And there's different dynamics at play. We're talking about a like parents and their relationship to their child and then to the doctor who's treating. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit different. So there are some surveys like that looking looking at some of these issues, but there's not a lot in pediatrics. And I'm surprised. I was surprised when I looked at the scientific literature. The best study I could find was from 2017, and it's in a journal called Cancer. Like the name of the journal is just Cancer. Wow. And they look at all types of cancer and, and all types of different studies dealing with cancer. So this was a very specific study looking at the interviewed and did focus groups with patients and parents at one of the children's hospitals in Boston. And they looked at the pers different perspectives they have. So there's different kinds of research you can do, right? There's what we call quantitative research, which is doing a survey, tallying them up and saying, oh, 30% of uh, doctors say they have a difficult relationship with their patients, right? But then you can do what's called qualitative research as well. And that's actually the type of research that I do more often in terms of my research hat that I wear. And you know what this kind of research is because it's like a focus group, right? When like you're focus group testing a product, right? You're not sending out the new label design for Pepsi to like a hundred people and having them write back to say which one they prefer. You get them in a room, you know, which one of these labels do you like better? Why do you like that better? What are the reasons and they talk and they kind of agree and disagree and you put all that information together. So that's kind of what qualitative research is. And that's what they did here. They interviewed these people and there's different techniques you can use in qualitative research to kind of bring out these common themes that they found. So this article is very good and we'll, we'll put a link to it because I think it's very useful. One of the things they start off with, which I think is very important, is you got to kind of put the discussion in its correct place, right? And they first really reinforce what I said at the beginning. It's not calling patients, parents, difficult parents, and just leaving it that, assigning all the blame to them. They're saying that you need this mutual respect and trust, and you need to have this dialogue between them. And really a patient-centered care right? Focusing on the patient, not focusing on the needs of the hospital, not focusing needs of the province or state, and not focusing on the needs of other patients on the ward. But that individual patient, that has to be an important aspect. So what did they find in their study? They found that in general, the parents described a difficult relationship, because now it's a two-way thing, right? When you call it a difficult relationship, as I said, it's factoring in the physician. And is it a difficult physician, right? Maybe that's what the problem is. Mm -hmm this question of sometimes they don't feel the doctors are working in the, in their child's best interests. And when that comes into conflict, that's when they have a problem. So in other words, they say sometimes doctors just see what they're doing. This is a job, but they're not seeing you as a person. Right. 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 
This is reminiscent of what we were talking about in the cannabis episode, because there are some thoughts, feelings, anecdotes, maybe not evidence yet about how efficient cannabis use is in, for example, epilepsy you'd mentioned, right? Mm -hmm. And in that episode, you were talking about a similar thing where parents are like, you know, act like you don't care. Whereas the truth is, if you could help their child, why on earth would why you would not, you not do, that? do that? Exactly. Right. It's kind of getting people on the same side. Now, if you look at the studies in terms of, you know, complaints, you know, complaints to the hospital by parents or patients, complaints to your governing body or malpractice lawsuits, which is like kind of like the nuclear level, mm -hmm. it's almost always a communication issue. It's almost always. So communicating things properly is the most important. And when things are not communicated to families, glossed over, not explained properly, you're not informing people, telling them the pros and cons of everything and just kind of doing things without talking to them, that's where you can erode this trust. That's a big thing that they that was found in this article was parents often have to have this level of trust. And and it can, you know, trust is a two-way street, obviously like I said before. So one of the quotes in this article is when I meet someone, I don't know if I trust them as a doctor yet. That part has to be earned, right? So, and especially the, the families who have children with very complex diseases and cancer certainly is one of them. They see different doctors, they see different residents, they see different medical students. And they're like, you know, all these people, I know my child best, yet all these new people are coming asking me the same questions. It kind of puts them a bit on edge, and so I think that's another important thing to remember. You know, you were asking me about heckling and what are some of the bad heckles I've seen or gotten, but I'm like equally curious here. What do these difficult relationships look like when they show up? How do they actually present themselves or manifest themselves? Often what starts these things off is like I was talking about a poor communication. Parents feel they've been burned. They had trust and that trust is lost for whatever reason. Either things were not communicated properly, an adverse event happens that we're not, they were not talked about. So now they're on the defensive. When you bring up a proposed treatment or investigation or intervention, they're immediately on the defensive saying, why are you doing that? Why are you suggesting that? You know, And then they feel they have to go look it up themselves, ask other people, then they have to come back to you. Some other times there are patients who want meetings and constant meetings and to be updated. And obviously I 100% agree, people should be updated. But sometimes you spend an hour in the morning talking to the family, then they ask you to come back later on in the afternoon. And then again at nighttime to come back and explain things, you know, you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. sometimes that's more, remember I said, we have to keep in mind what else is going on with them. Sometimes that's anxiety some, or sometimes it's having a difficulty dealing with the diagnosis. I have one, sure. uh, I, I'll give you one example recently that I had where I was called because I was giving a diagnosis to a family. And uh, when I left, they're like, yeah, you know what? They didn't understand anything of that. It's because you don't speak their language. Let's get a translator in and you can explain it again. So I said, okay, no problem. So I'll come back, explain the whole thing again with the translator. And halfway through, they just ignored what the translator was saying and they just spoke in English back and forth. Mm -hmm. You can probably see what was happening there. The, the parrot did understand everything I was saying. Their English is fine. They weren't understanding because they weren't ready to accept the diagnosis, what was going on and the concerns that we had, because it was a very difficult diagnosis to give. Yeah, I mean, I've been looking at those uh, those stages of grief, and while this is not grief-stricken people, I'm sure it's those same emotions, right? The anger and the disbelief and denial and all these things sort of show up. I'm, you know, why my kid and this can't no, be happening. It, it is grief. That's that's exactly it. And some people don't. Need, you need to help people get over that initial hurdle of dealing with grief. I'll give you another example. I had a friend whose child was diagnosed with a learning disability, right? And my friend was so upset, like crying, just couldn't function. It's just a learning disability. Think about what I see every day. I see people with neurodegenerative diseases. In other words, the kid is fine, and then they deteriorate, 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 and then they die. I mean, it's horrible. Why are you so upset about this? But, and you know this, Ali, nobody expects their kids to be average. Right? No one thinks that. Everybody thinks their kids are going to be better than them, above average. The prime minister of Canada, they're going to be an NHL hockey player. They're going to do all these things. So no, everybody's expectations are already high. 
then you say, well, not only are you not average, you actually have this learning problem, which may impact some things. So we need to put some things in place in school. All these things end up being grief. Even when I give a diagnosis, that's good. Sometimes people find it difficult. So it's, it's dealing with all this stuff and how people deal with that as well. I think we have to be sympathetic to how that goes. And, but to answer your question, sometimes it can go really off the rails. I won't specify the city or who this is, but one of my friends who's an adult doctor, so this is not parents necessarily, but it was, I think there was a bad outcome with uh, a patient and the patient's family like went to my friend's house. He's a doctor. They went to his house and were ringing the doorbell and yelling at him for, wow. for the treatment of their family member. So so obviously there are things that cross the line that's mm-hmm. borderline illegal, you know, trespassing sure. and, and whatever. So that's a bit threatening and things like that. That's different. But I, I, again, those extreme examples, you don't want to get too worked up about those because, and it's not just, oh, a parent disagrees with what I have to say. Like, that's okay too. But it's the ones where you get to an impasse caring for the child. And then you have to go back to what we were saying before, which is what are we all doing this for? We're doing this to help children, right? We all have the best interests of children in mind, as you were saying. Well, to end this, I wanted to ask you the same thing you asked me, which is, uh, you know, strategies for dealing with a heckler. But in your case, for me, you weren't like, what are good strategies for a heckler? For a heckler, it's just like, just shut your mouth. When you think you should speak, don't. I want to ask you what are strategies not only for the doctors in difficult relationships, but also for the parents? What can parents do to maybe avoid relationships like that? Why don't we start with what I think doctors should do? And I have a list of about 10 things that they should do. Okay. The first one is listen. And I would put that in bold, all caps, underlined, maybe not italic, because, you know, that's kind of like, is that less important if it's italic? But <laughs> definitely bold. Uh, Asterisks. Asterisks beside it. You need to listen, actually listen to what people are saying to you. Don't come in with preconceived notions. The worst thing that could happen is you heard, oh, I heard this is a difficult parent. I mean, just listen to what they have to say and what their concerns are and actually listen to what their concerns are, not necessarily what their doctor has referred them to you or what someone wrote down when they come to the emergency room that this, this is what they're here for. Just actually listen to what their concerns are. The second thing is to ensure that the families are partners in healthcare. So we're moving more to this in pediatrics. So a part of a team, like your child is admitted to the hospital, you got the medical student, you got the doctor, you got the nurse, you got the physiotherapist, you got the social worker, but the other part of the team is the parent. And for older children, it's them. You have to make sure they're actively involved in every stage of the admission from uh, investigations, treatment, et cetera. Third thing is remind parents you have the same goal. As we said before, both of you have the best interest of the child at heart. And if you can keep coming back to that, that's very important. The fourth thing is know what you're talking about. So if you're going to see a patient who has a rare disorder, why don't you look it up first before pretending you know something about it? And I'm a little sad that you have to give that as advice. I thought that would be... uh... I'll tell you the story, Ali, quickly, since you asked. I didn't go to this particular medical school, but there's a medical school in Canada who I interacted with a lot of the students there. And, you know, when we do our rounds, which is you're in the hospital and you kind of go from room to room, kind of talking about the different patients, students from this university would never utter the words, I don't know. I never heard one of them say it. They would just figure out some way around to get you around saying the words, Mm. I don't know. It's like they were forbidden on the first day of medical school. Okay. So their lesson was always display confidence. You are the doctor, be confident. And that's a very like optimistic way of kind of viewing what they're doing. I think they're not showing humility. You have to admit when you don't know. And then you'd say to your family, I don't know the answer, but I'll look that up and I'll, I'll get back to you about it. Or, you know, that comes up all the time. Have you heard of this study? You know, actually, I never heard of that, but I'll look that up and I'll get back to you about that. If you don't know it, don't pretend you don't know something. And that also goes back to my next point, number five, which is Remember, parents are the experts on their child, especially when they have a complex or rare disease. They know more about often that disease than you do, but they definitely know about more about their child than they do. So a typical discussion would be, you're the expert on your child. I'm the expert in pediatric neurology or whatever thing you're dealing with. 
So that's where we can come together. I know my field extremely well. I'm the expert of this. You're the expert in your child. And we're going to try and tailor everything specifically to help your child. And the sixth thing is to remember about children's rights. It can become very difficult from an ethical point of view. Remember, the parents may want something, but what does the child want? And I have patients sometimes where the family doesn't want to give them medication for whatever, seizures or whatever, but the kid wants it. So you have mm. to listen to the kid and see see what they say. And, you know, there's no age of consent in the province we live in in Ontario. In other words, any child could consent if they're intellectually able to. In our hospital, if they're 12 and up, for example, say the family wants access to the patient's chart, after age 12, the child has to sign it, not the parents. And obviously, parents get very concerned about that. But remember, you can't forget about children's rights. The seventh one is don't forget to be empathetic regarding what's going on. That's my example of what parents may be dealing with during COVID. You have to be sympathetic to mental health issues that may be going on with, with the family. But by the same point, don't forget what I said before. Just because a parent is having mental health issues and is not dealing with things well, doesn't mean the child should necessarily suffer for that. So that's something you have to work on. Eighth is ask for expectations early on. When a family comes to see you in the clinic, you want to make sure you know what they want immediately. Don't wait till the end of the appointment. They're like, that's not, I wasn't here for the headaches. I was here because I'm worried they're having seizures. Or maybe they thought they're seeing you for their constipation. And but you're like, yeah, but I'm a neurologist. But that's what they want to talk about as a constipation. So find that early on. Also find out about constipation. You know what I mean? Be, well, well, be ready. Why, to... why you should find out more about constipation. I will. I will. I've got some pressing, urgent questions. The ninth is remember you're providing an opinion, nothing more, nothing less. So sometimes when you get into these difficult situations with families where they really want you to give a diagnosis or you really want to say what they want to hear, which is like, this is curable, this is a great prognosis, you know, I often say, listen, I'm giving you an opinion. And opinions you can agree with, you can disagree with, that's up to you, but I'm just I'm putting it all together and giving you an opinion. That's in the end what doctors do. And the last thing is, if you see someone getting upset or frustrated, a parent or a child, by what, what you're talking about, you can tell you've said something or something, their blood pressure is rising and, and the tension's increasing in the room, it's better to address it, right? And say, I feel I may have said something to upset you or something like that. And just call it out and bring it out in the open instead of just ignoring it and letting that kind of simmer. All right. So those are your 10 tips for doctors who we know we have doctors who are part of our listenership base. So hopefully that helps somebody see their own uh, practice in a, in, a, in a slightly different way. What about parents? What can parents do? So I have a couple of things, not as many for the parents. What I recommend to everybody is when they're dealing with the healthcare system, ask questions, make lists, so write your questions before you go to the appointments and make lists of things you want to ask about. And if you forget, write them down after you leave, and then you can either call or ask at your next appointment. And become an expert. I know it's, it's we always say, oh, everybody's saying do their research, but become an expert on what's going on and, and read about things. Make sure you feel you're well-informed. Remember that communication is a two-way street. In fact, you have to advocate for your children. That's what you're there for as a, as a parent. You have to advocate for your children. But I remember this example from when I was a resident in Toronto doing pediatric neurology. There was one parent, his child had a very complex disease. They don't even remember what it was. I had never seen someone do it this well. I'd say, you know, uh, Mr. So-and-so, we uh, want to uh, pursue this treatment. He's like, he, in the most calm way, he'd be like, you know, you know, I've thought about that, but I think we should pursue this. And the way he said it was so calm, but yet informed and firm and like, no, this is the way I prefer to do it, but so polite and so respectful. You had no choice but to say, oh yeah, th that's a reasonable thing to do. What you don't want to do is do the opposite being disrespectful, yelling. Guns a-blazing. Because the problem is the last thing you would ever want is people to start avoiding you and your child in the hospital. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not yeah. seeing you, not rounding on you every day, saving you to the last because they know, oh, I got to be stuck in here an hour. And, and I'm not saying that those are good things that, that people are doing, but you don't want to put people on the defensive so much that that happens. The issue that doctors are just providing an opinion, if you don't like it, that's okay. There's other people who may be able to give a similar opinion, may be able to give a different one. And the last thing is also remember empathy. Just like doctors should be having empathy for the situation of the parents, remember to have empathy for the doctors. So you could be listening to this and be thinking, well, what do you know? 
has your child ever been medically ill? Has one of your family members ever been ill? Well, you don't know that. You don't know anything about me. Mm-hmm. And so don't assume that doctors have never been in your situation before, that they've never had difficult things like that. It doesn't mean that they understand exactly what you're going through because your situation is unique, but don't assume that they haven't experienced these things before. Okay. Those are not helpful for hecklers. I will say that again, but, but hopefully helpful for parents. That is our episode today. Don't heckle, be empathetic. At this point in life, I would even take a heckle because that would mean I'm in a live comedy club environment and, uh, and that would be exciting. So, uh, but I never said this. I never said this. Cut it. Cut it from don't, the edit. Don't, don't. Uh, we're keeping that. So just before we go, remember, follow us. We're on uh, Twitter. We're on Instagram, Dr. V Comedian. We're on Facebook, LinkedIn. We're, we're everywhere, really. You can leave us a rating and a review, but what we'd really appreciate is if you could just mention to one friend, somebody you know who listens to podcasts and say, check out this podcast. I really like it. That would be amazing. We'd really appreciate it. Please remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only and are not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. And though that may sound rude, just keep in mind that while I am not your comedian, I am a comedian, but I could be your comedian. Okay? One of us is a little less empathetic. I'm here for you, everyone. And, uh, and, and thank you for being here for us. It's been a nice episode. I've learned learned some stuff myself. Who would have guessed? Right. Who would have guessed? <laughs> who knew? Who knew? We'll see you next time. Bye.